there have been several instances where HR people have done or performed employee investigations and come to the wrong decision. They came to the wrong decision because of a mistake they made in the investigation. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. And just a reminder that Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. So I've conducted employment-related investigations my entire career. Give me a manager who can't keep his hands to himself, and I've got a great day ahead of me. And every leader will eventually face the unfortunate necessity of investigating possible misconduct. This may be something as seemingly slight as a violation of company policy to something as serious as illegal sexual harassment. Whatever the case, employers have an ethical duty and often a legal responsibility to investigate possible bad behavior and, if necessary, correct it. Joining me today to discuss employment-related investigations is John Hagen. John is an HR attorney who practices nationwide employment law from his office in Allen, Texas, and is board certified in Texas labor and employment law. John's firm represents a wide range of companies of all sizes and in all industries. His specialty is counseling companies using best practices and preventative HR, resulting in less litigation. Welcome to Good Morning HR, John. Thrilled to be here, Mike. You know, I think the biggest mistake employers make in this whole area is not investigating possible misconduct. And it's possible to go overboard and make everything a full-blown investigation, but what's your criteria for determining when an investigation is really necessary? Well, I think the first point you need to look at is to determine whether or not the complaint of conduct is worth a full-blown investigation or can just be handled by coaching and counseling and possibly initiation of the progressive discipline policy. So in our practice, we get calls every week that an employee is complaining about a hostile work environment. And those three words really seem to set off HR professionals in thinking that this is going to be some type of large class action lawsuit that will sink the company. 90% of the, of the time, that is not the case. 90% of the time, this hostile work environment claim is based upon hurt feelings, boorish behavior, um, someone being extremely rude to another person. Remember, though, that such conduct, while it may violate your the policies in your employee handbook, probably do not violate the law. And that's why they call me to, to determine, why my clients call me to determine whether or not this is a violation of the law. A hostile work environment is only a violation of the law if it is based upon a protected class or a protected activity. Protected classes, of course, are race, sex, age, religious beliefs, things like that. Protected, a protected conduct, if you will, is things like complaining about 
sexual harassment or race discrimination in good faith. If someone is being discriminated and or retaliated against uh, for either being in a protected class or engaging in a protected activity, then that part is illegal. Yeah. And and I think that's, you know, every employee thinks when they're getting in trouble, that makes it a hostile work environment. I mean, I, I hear it just like you do all the time. It's all hostile, hostile, hostile. And maybe it is, but, you know, it's the old saying, I, you know, I'd be in jail if being an a-hole was illegal. <laughs> and so, you know, the, you know, just because, you know, there are managers out there who, you know, aren't great managers, not, not great leaders, and they're expensive to the company and the company should fix that and get good <laughs> leaders and, and either train them or, or, or replace them. But that doesn't make it illegal. And I think that's a conversation a lot of HR people just get liver quiver about having with an employee. Uh, and so, uh, I, and I think if they, if, if you're ever in doubt, do call your legal counsel. I mean, that's, that's really good advice too, because it's better to, to be acting, you know, under the color of representation. So you, you know, then, then just making a decision and not doing anything and then coming back later and saying, well, yeah, we should have done something about that. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Mike. Um, most of these situations can be handled simply by getting the employees together and working something out, reminding the employees of our policies or our unwritten practices that are the company norms and go forth from there and then simply monitor it to determine whether or not your remedy is in fact working. Right. And maybe down the road, if the behavior continues, the, you know, the policy violation isn't corrected on an ongoing basis, then we get into more documentation and maybe he said, she said, and it's a bigger deal and we need to go do an investigation even into violations of company policy and those kinds of things. But, you know, the thing that a lot of HR people have is somebody comes and knocks on the door of the HR office and said, I think you should know this, but I don't want you to do anything about it. And they just kind of pull the pin on the hand grenade and throw it at the HR desk and, and leave <laughs> it to you to deal with. That's a great analogy. And, um, and you know, and they want to, they want all the confidentiality. I don't want you to say, you know, I, I don't want you to say anything about, about me. I just thought you should know. And, uh, when a complainant or a tipster comes forward and, and wants confidentiality, what's your typical response or what should the typical HR response be? You would say I would, number one, um, welcome the comment. Number two, let them know that they won't be retaliated against for uh, conveying that comment to us as long as the comment is made in good faith. And number three, by telling me, then you are also telling the company for which I represent and that you work for. And therefore, I can't promise confidentiality about it. We will do the best we can to keep it confidential. But as you can imagine, if I have to investigate this, I have to talk to the person who uh, is being complained about and also the person who is being affected by the conduct that is being complained about. And, you know, and maybe we can keep it quiet. But then the other thing is, is if this ends up in a lawsuit, 
ain't no secrets, you know, <laughs> and that's the other thing, you know, if this, if this, if, if we end up, heaven forbid, uh, in a deposition someplace, uh, and they say, well, how did this come to your attention? I'm probably going to end up having to say, so-and-so told me. That's exactly right. Now, in some situations, Mike, when what they actually tell you is something that requires an immediate response, something like violence is about ready to happen mm -hmm. in the workplace, um, a trade secret is about ready to be disclosed to a third party, well, then you just simply have to act immediately. You don't have a choice. And so you very quickly tell the person who is in your office, listen, I w we will keep it as confidential as possible, but I need to ask you some very direct questions that I need you to answer factually as opposed to conclusory so that we can address this, you know, within the hour, within the day, within the week. Right. And, and then they get, cold feet and say, oh, well, never mind. I don't want to really do that. And they think it's like, you know, you hear people say they, they're going to, you know, I, I, I'm going to rescind my police report. My police, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, and it's same with HR. If somebody rescinds their complaint, but they're not saying I lied to you. They're saying, oh, I really don't want you to do anything about this because I don't want to get involved. Then now you've got a duty to the company to participate as as you know that person has a duty to the company to participate in the investigation, right? Well, that is correct. Um, I've never seen an employee tell an HR professional, "Oh, forget about what I I just told you. I was lying." Right. Um, that's never going to happen in anybody's career. But this is akin to the frustration that police officers feel to uh, domestic violence complaints. So they'll go, uh, they'll get a, a domestic violence complaint. They will investigate. Sure enough, they find domestic violence. And then all of a sudden, the person complaining about it no longer wants to press charges. That's not the case here. Right. Um, the employee who brings it to your attention and then wants to rescind it or uh, keep it quiet and have nothing done about it, that's not going to happen in a good company that's run by a good HR department because we have an affirmative duty to go ahead and investigate that. Uh, the person complaining or coming to you that's sitting in your office has an affirmative duty to continue on in telling you and tell you everything he or she knows um, about this complaint. And if they don't, after you instruct them to do so, well, that's insubordination. And insubordination is something that we address, hopefully, in our employee handbook through the progressive discipline policy. And you let them know, hey, if you don't tell me, then, you know, you're going to be insubordinate and we're going to have to perhaps take advantage of or, or take some action against you. So, this is, I am coaching and counseling you right now so that we don't have to move into the progressive discipline arena. And then the employer still needs to investigate the issue to the extent that they can, even if they don't have the details from that person. So if we get into an investigation, how do you decide who should do the investigation when you're guiding your, your clients through that? What does that look, what's that consideration look like? Well, that's a great question. Uh, number one, if our client has another employee or 
the HR manager or HR director, whomever it is, but some employee with training and experience in investigations, then that's the best way to do it, uh, to choose somebody internal, someone who's already a W-2 employee with the company. That's always my first choice. But sometimes it, uh, the either the company or the HR director doesn't feel comfortable with handling this or doesn't want anybody internally to do it or doesn't have anybody internally to do it. So then you have to go to a third party. Oftentimes that's an HR consultant. Uh, oftentimes that's an attorney. And when it's an attorney, if they, if one of my existing clients asks me to go ahead and do an investigation, I will probably turn them down and refer them to a friend of mine or friends of mine who are attorneys who are uh, very experienced in this. And the reason I would turn them down is this, Mike. So I owe a fiduciary duty to do whatever's good in nothing bad toward the client. If I do the investigation myself, then I become a fact witness to that investigation. And therefore, if this thing gets into litigation or arbitration, then, and I am called to testify, I may have to testify adversely to my client that I owe that fiduciary duty. I can't do that. But I also can't lie under oath. I'm not supposed to lie anyway, but definitely not under oath. And therefore, that's why I would refer it out to either an attorney, an employment law attorney who I trust, or perhaps a third-party HR consultant who I also trust. And so those those outside uh, HR consultants, uh, a lot of them do really, really good work um, and have a, years and years of experience, often in that one area. I, you know, um, I think of my, my friend Terry Swain, who in the 80s was an EEOC investigator. I mean, she's been, you know, actively doing this as long as just about anybody. She'd hate to hear me say that because that suggests how old she is, but, um, <laughs> but she's brilliant and, um, and has been on the pod, but um, she, uh, she, she's fully competent. Now, unfortunately, some people's HR consultants are compensation analysts and things like that. So you really <laughs> want to make sure that they have the expertise in that area because it's a whole different world, right? To, to actually, feel confident in, in, you know, going and talking to employees and, and asking the right questions and not being intimidated uh, and not getting too much liver quiver about can I, can I, or can't I, they need to know before they go in what they can and can't ask and, and how to conduct it. Yeah. Otherwise you're just making a huge mistake by hiring somebody who is inexperienced. Um, I had that situation come up in a recent um, sexual harassment investigation where the HR consultant who was not a lawyer and did not have a PI license um, went ahead and did a great investigation, got all the facts. And then as part of her summary, she went ahead and concluded that the employer did engage in sexual harassment, didn't do anything about it. And here's what they should have done instead. That required the client, the company, and me 
to negotiate a pretty hefty settlement being paid to the employee who was sexually harassed. Why? Because we didn't want that report done by the third-party HR consultant to get into litigation. Otherwise, it would have cost the company a lot more money in a jury verdict or an arbitrator's award um, if that report had come to the surface. But that's a, you know, I've had that happen once or twice in 25 years. It doesn't happen often, but it does highlight the fact that you need somebody trained and experienced. And if that person is not a trained and experienced attorney in employee investigations, then you also want to look at people like yourself, Mike and Terry Swain, um, who have their PI licenses to be able to conduct these investigations because that is required by uh, Texas state law. I didn't know that until recently and you informed me of that. So I thank you very much for that information. It's very valuable. Um, I'm not sure why an HR consultant needs a PI license to uh, investigate an HR issue, but as it stands right now, that's the law in Texas. It's Chapter 1702 of the Texas Occupations Code. Um, I've lived under it for 25 years now. The um, and and you know, in in the state's defense, if they're going to require PI licensing of anybody, probably HR investigations have them have the potential for having the most impact on somebody's quality of life. Uh, you know, if if uh, if I if somebody's, you know, following somebody around for, you know, cheating on my spouse or something like that, that's got an impact. Uh, but the ability to get somebody fired by doing so, you know, by being, you know, uh, a knucklehead is pretty impactful too. So I, I you know, if they're going to require it, I can, I understand why they're requiring it, uh, for, for, uh, an HR consultant who's engaging in investigations on behalf of their employers. So when I start, I mean, I just, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I, I just uh, last fall did a, a really large investigation for a local government where uh, the, uh, the HR leader in the organization had to recuse herself from the investigation because one of the parties involved in the complaint, uh, making the complaint, uh, was in her organ in her part of the organization. She felt like she needed to be hands off. And in local government politics, being what local government politics are, she you know uh, she didn't uh, want to get involved. So I did it, and and they brought they brought me in, and it, it was a, uh, I mean it was hours and hours of investigation, and that's probably the other reason they wanted to do it because she didn't want to sink that much time in, you know into that issue. Uh, but it's a. Uh, that's that's a consideration, right? Do I have time if I'm the if the person who's going to do the investigation, you know, internally? Do I have if it's a big one? Do I really have fifteen hours, twenty hours to dedicate this to this in a timely manner? You know, if we put it on our calendar, we'll investigate this four or five weeks from now. That's probably not, especially under Texas new sexual harassment law. That's certainly right. not uh, going to be responsive enough. But. That was a little rabbit trail. I don't know why I went down that one because what I was going to say <laughs> is the first thing I do when I start an investigation is identify the matter at hand. What are, you know, in the criminal world, it'd be what are the elements of the crime? But, you know, I, I, I sit down and define exactly what the complaint is, 
And if that complaint is legit, what law, what policies, exactly what are the criteria that we're going to evaluate the behavior against? Is that where you would start? or? Well, let me ask you a question, Mike. Mm-hmm. Um, before the investigation kicks off, how do you determine whether the complaint is legit or not? Oh, I don't know that. I just know I want to know what the complaint is and nail the complaint down. So what I'm saying is I want to know what the elements of the complaint are. So if it's sexual harassment, you know, we know what those elements are. Or if it's a violation of company policy, company policy says that a manager has to sign a check over X dollars or has to prove this or has to go through these processes and the allegations that were circumvented. So we need to say, was this check written? Did they follow these procedures? And so I like to go into the investigation knowing, I mean, I may find other things often, almost always do find other stuff that, you know, that's of of concern, but at least in the matter at hand, I'll know, you know, I know black and white, you know, if it quacks like a duck, and walks like a duck, it's a duck, I'll know, I'll have all those those criteria defined up front. So there's no, there's no, I know what questions to ask and have that conversation. And it makes it harder for somebody who's trying to obfuscate uh, and, and mix up issues to do that. Is that not, what would, what, where, where would you normally start in, in planning uh, an investigation once you decide we're going to do one? Well, like I said, number one, we would, if we've decided to do one, we would choose who the investigator uh, will be. Then number two, um, if it's us or if it's a third party attorney or HR consultant, then you want to work with that outside party to plan and conduct the investigation. So first thing I would do is to develop a list of open-ended questions, not yes or no questions, but open-ended questions that allow the witness or the complainant to talk for a while. And those are uh, difficult questions to develop. Um, So over, you know, the last almost three decades, we've developed several templates of those questions, depending on the type of complaint that is being made. And then we customize those for the individual facts and the people that are involved. And if your listeners, Mike, want a copy of some of those, I'd be glad to share um, some of those templates that we have. But we would start off by uh, developing the questions and then launching into the witness interviews um, and then collecting evidence Um, Now, with everything being recorded electronically, there are voicemails, there are texts, there are emails, there could even be physical evidence, um, pictures of nude women, for example, uh, that you would want to collect. And so that's basically where I would start off. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative premium background checks with fast and friendly service. We've all heard the traditional advice when it comes to considering applicants' criminal history, look at it on a case-by-case basis. And for many employers, that's basically their policy, whether they've actually written it down or not. The problem with this approach is that it almost guarantees that we're going to introduce bias into the hiring decision. This applicant went to the same school as I did, or I can really relate to his circumstances, so I feel more comfortable with his criminal history. 
but those aren't things that actually mitigate the risk someone may or may not pose in your organization, and they put you at risk of creating a disparate impact. To help create a more fair and robust system for evaluating the relevance of an applicant's criminal history, I've recorded a free webinar entitled How to Fairly and Legally Evaluate Applicants' Criminal History. In this one-hour webinar, I cover the process of assessing the risk associated with a position and identifying what kinds of past behavior may be relevant to those risks. And this webinar is approved for an hour of recertification credit from both HRCI and SHRM. You can watch this and all of my other webinars on demand at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one hour of recertification credit. To get the research information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 87 and enter the keyword investigate. That's I-N-V-E-S-T-I-G-A-T-E. And now back to my conversation with John Hagen. Like you said, there's so much data, electronic. Um, and now a lot of our, if we're working with remote workforces, a lot of our interviews are going to be electronic as well, over telephone, or over Zoom or something like that, depending on uh, the availability of, of different witnesses. What's your, what's your take on recording interviews? Everybody's got different opinions on them, but what's your take on it? That's a big issue, and I've recently switched my opinion. So I guess for about 24 years, I've always advised clients not to record these interviews or these investigations. Um, but then we got in a whole new batch of new clients, um, and their culture was to record these covertly. In other words, record them, but don't tell the witness or the complainant that it's being recorded. If they're asked if they're being recorded, then yes, tell the truth. Yes, you are being recorded. There's no law in Texas that prevents one party from recording another party as long as um that party, at least one party, is uh, will consent to the recording. And typically, that's the recorder, the person asking the questions, who has to do that. Other states are different. And if you're talking to somebody in a different state, you better uh, check that state's law to make sure that you're not violating uh, that law. And so um, what I advise clients is that if you're doing a remote investigation, you need to assume that you're being recorded and go forward from there. Um, because you, like you said earlier in the podcast, Mike, you certainly don't want this to end up on the front page of the New York Times or the Fort Worth Star Telegram, Dallas Morning News, or wherever. Um, and so you want to be uh, very judicious with your words and ask more questions than give out information. And when you ask open-ended questions, then you're going to get a lot of uh, conversation in return. And that's what you want. You want to do whatever you can to promote and encourage getting to the truth. Yeah, and the I've, I've long valued the recording simply because I cannot take notes at the, at the detail that I prefer and 
maintain that engagement with that interviewee. It's uh, I've, you know, over the years and I've done it, but <laughs> uh, when I sit down to write my report, I like to go back and say, you know, cause I'm, I'm meticulous about detail. I'm just, you know, that's my, you know, I'm a suspenders and belt kind of guy when it comes to this stuff. And so uh, I'll go back and if I'm going to, you know, I love putting direct quotes in and I want to listen exactly to what they said. I don't do it surreptitiously though. Um, it's uh, certainly we're a one party state, but um, I've, I've just always felt that heaven forbid, if I ever have to testify or even sit through a deposition when I've sat through depositions on, on, on investigations. Have you testified but, before, Mike? Uh, I have not related to an, an employment investigation. I have as an expert in other issues around, around investigative related stuff, but never as the. And your uh, criminal activity, right? Pardon? <laughs> Just a joke. <laughs> never mind. Uh, so the, um, so the, I, I just, you know, I, I, I never want it to seem like I, on behalf of the employer was being sneaky because I just, I don't know that that would play well in front of a jury. Um, so it would not. And so that's, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, but you're right. More and more people are recording. I used to be when you go into an employment law conference or something, I say, Oh, don't record because mm -hmm. you're creating, you know, you're creating evidence, you're creating something, but I would rather have really accurate, uh, you know, recording of what I said, rather than relying on my hand scratch notes to try to defend something, you know, two years down the road when I finally end up in a deposition. So I'm a, I've been a big believer in it. And now with Zoom and everything, everybody's used to it. Plus, you don't know if the employee's recording. Well, and, they are. And, yeah. and that's always a question to ask, right? I mean, I always will ask, are you recording? Uh, and and they can tell me or not. It's up to them. But I've got a record. I've got a recording of them telling me, "No, I'm not recording." And so, if it comes up late or something, you know, uh, we've at least got that issue covered. So, let me ask you a question, Mike. If you are recording and you tell the witness you are recording, what would you say in response to their question? Well, can I get a copy of that recording? That's it. Well, first of all, it's the employer's property, <laughs> and so as as the third party, I'm not. I I can't make that. But probably not, because I, I don't think you've got a, a right to it under under the law, and it's the employer's property, and I don't know that they would want that distributed like that. And you can, and I would also tell them you've got the choice of proceeding. What if it contains a great deal of great evidence for the employer? Well, then it, it's then it's, it's still the employers, and they can decide. I don't, I don't know that they. If you interview fifteen people, I don't know that I want fifteen copies. You know, fifteen different interviews floating around out there. Uh, I would, I would be inclined to, as the employer, to say, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, just like we wouldn't share the 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 uh, investigation report with the parties or anything mm -hmm. else. Well, would you suggest otherwise? I think in some cases I would, if number one, this was in arbitration as opposed to litigation. Oh, okay. Um, and then number two, um, I, I've never been asked that question, but it's going to come up mm -hmm. now with Zoom meetings being recorded and the like. And so I would take it on a case by case basis. But if um, the, the, employee or the witness asks that question and ends up later perhaps getting an attorney, I would consider sharing that with the attorney. I, I had that situation uh, pop up recently. And what I did was 
I went over to the opposing counsel's office and played the recording for them. I didn't give it to them. I just played it for them. And we ended up settling the case for probably about eight cents on the dollar. Yeah. Cause at that point, you know, and, and pl- poor, you know, employment plaintiffs, lawyer, employment plaintiffs, lawyers say that mm-hmm. three times fast, uh, are, have such a disadvantage because, you know, as far as can they trust their, their own clients or not. And the clients always have, a uh, often at least have a, uh, an interesting view of what really happened versus reality. And, uh, and so, uh, I, uh, you know, I can see where you could, you could playing, you know, in that environment, playing the recording for them shows them what they're up against. Cause now we've already, whatever their clients telling them, we've already got the, their, their client saying something completely different, maybe on a recording. So, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's just uh, it's easier to when it comes to law to working with legal counsel. Let's not get it any more inflammatory than we have to. If we can keep this, you know, professional and and you know, I think everybody is better served. I don't think we have to go to war every time a, a, a oh, former no. employee gets a lawyer. So no, you got to remember, employees have their emotions invested in this dispute, and they have a history with the company or the supervisor that no lawyer or investigator can discern right at the beginning of an investigation. And so you always take that into account. And plaintiff's lawyers know that as well. And so they always discount what is being told to them. And much like private investigators, you do this long enough, like you and I have, Mike, and Within about five seconds, you know if somebody's lying to you or not. And if they're going to lie or they're going to exaggerate or if they are going to talk about things that they really don't know about, then we pick up on that. And that damages the, the person's credibility in the lies of the, I'm sorry, in the eyes of the investigator or the attorney. That's one thing that HR really needs to uh, embrace and put its arms around the fact that as the HR person doing the employee investigation, they must make the final credibility decisions about who's telling the truth, who's telling the most truth, who's not telling the truth, either because they're not knowledgeable of what's going on, or maybe they are slanting the truth. You know, it's the, will you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And that's exactly the type of information and where the training and experience comes in for the investigator, because they'll know. They'll say, okay, well, uh, Mike was a credible witness, but John wasn't as credible and therefore, I'm going to give more weight to Mike than I will to John. And another thing that is really, really helpful uh, in determining credibility and finding out what most likely happened, because you'll never be sure 100% of what happened, especially in the he said, she said context. But what really helps investigators, and tell me if you agree, is to look for corroborating evidence. 
Two witnesses say the same thing about their own personal observations, about something they saw with their own eyes, things they heard with their own ears, as opposed to, well, I heard this from somebody else. But if you can get first, per first person witness corroboration among two or three um, employees or witnesses or whomever, then you've got a solid basis of believing whatever those observations were. So what do you think, Mike? Yeah, that's gold. If, if you can get that, if, if, if you've, because, and I think it's gold, it helps certainly just in, in deciding how to write your report and, and uh, assigning responsibility, but also inside the company and the organization, if multiple witnesses said the same thing, even though we, we as HR, we as the leaders, as the investigators, aren't going to talk to the rest of the team about the details of our investigation, we all know those employees are. They're going to they're gonna end. So we know that even though we ask them not to, they're going to. And if multiple people were supporting our story or the, you know, the conclusion that we came to, that's that's that means a lot in the culture. And, and, and you know, even if this is a well-liked employee, but multiple employees are willing to say, yeah, but I saw him say that and I, or, or I saw him, you know, do this thing, then, then I think that that helps build credibility uh, if you've got multiple people. So it doesn't look like, oh, well, you know, they listen to Joe and Joe plays golf with, you know, the, the regional manager. And, uh, and so it, it, that, that tends to undercut, but sometimes that's all you've got. I mean, I've been in plenty of situations where I've got, what he what he said and what he said and right um the you know sometimes it's a draw and i have to go back to the employer and say there's nothing you know there's nothing determining here uh and so the best you can do is retrain make sure you've addressed whatever uh you know whatever controls you have in place around whatever circumstance uh you know and other times yeah, I'm leaning that this guy's telling me the truth. I've gotten, you know, he, you know, he does, he doesn't, he comes across much more credible than Party B, and I try to, you know, give specific reasons. And I think if you if you've done that well, and you, heaven forbid you get in front of a jury, that you're gonna, you know, that's gonna that's gonna come out, you know, well with the jury too. They're gonna see you know, how you weighed credibility and and that you actually thought through the process. And if you record that interview, mm -hmm. then you've got backup for that as well. Other people can judge the credibility of the witness. Right. And the other thing is, is like you mentioned, you know, the employee who's full of hyperbole talk, you know, and, and <laughs> it doesn't come across. I've, I've heard recordings where HR people challenge them. Now, is that right? Or they stop them and challenge them on individual points during the interview. And I'm, as soon as I pick up that somebody's not being straight with me, I feed them all the rope to hang themselves with. I let them go on and I and dig themselves a deeper hole before I ever would challenge them because now they've, 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 it, they can't say, Oh, I just misspoke. They've dug themselves a deeper hole uh, by embellishing and going beyond what, you know, and often I, I do a lot of, I do all, I try to do all my document and documentation review and everything before I ever talk to, oh yeah uh, uh, you know, to a, a to a, a witness. And so if I, if I'm seeing something flying in the face of hard evidence, that's that for me, when I'm doing the investigation is, 
you know, a giant red flag and I let them, especially if I'm recording, let them go all the way with it. And so, so credibility, cooperation, and then sometimes it's just Occam's razor, right? It boils down to what's the, you know, given what we know, what's the, you know, what is the, the simplest answer? What's the most like, you know, you know, a part, you know, conspiracies are rarely true. What, you know, when we look at the, the facts, what's the most obvious answer? What's the, 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 uh, the you know, the, the most obvious thing is, is what it is. Right. So you just mm-hmm. have to make that decision. And, and that's what I think really bothers a lot of HR folks is it's tough being in that situation where they have to be that, you know, that determiner of, of credibility. Well, I think HR can take comfort in several Fifth Circuit decisions that have come down over the years. And of course, the Fifth Circuit is the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that oversees Texas and uh, interprets federal law, sometimes interprets Texas law, but it's one step away from the United States Supreme Court. So they're a big deal. They are kind of like the gods below the God um, if you will. But um, there have been several instances where HR people have done or performed uh, employee investigations and come to the wrong decision. They came to the wrong decision because of a mistake they made in the investigation. Let's say that there's an investigation into embezzlement and the HR investigator looks into it, interviews the witnesses, looks at the documents, but overlooks one document uh, that really revealed the fraud or the embezzlement. And so they decide um, not to fire the one accused of embezzling funds, but instead fire uh, the person who uh, alleged that they were embezzling funds. And they fired him for um, Uh, for rendering a very serious complaint in bad faith. In other words, they concluded that the complaining party was lying about it just to get back at the party accused of the, of the um, embezzlement. Well, then, you know, three or four months later, they uncovered this missing document that the HR investigator looked at and uh, they realized that they've made a mistake. Mistakes made by HR professionals under Fifth Circuit precedent are not things like discrimination, retaliation, or harassment. You've got to remember that under the law, most discrimination, retaliation, and harassment is intentional. It's intentional uh, discrimination. You're discriminating against me because my hair is white or my skin is white or any number of things. When an HR professional makes an honest mistake with no intent to discriminate, then that's all it is. It's a mistake. And a company and the HR manager cannot be held legally liable for taking an adverse employment action as a result of an honest mistake. And so if if a client hires you, Mike, to do an investigation and you do a very thorough investigation uh, like I know that you do. And then later on, it turns out that some of the information that was provided you was false, uh, even though it may have been corroborated. Um, And the employer takes your suggestions on what to do as the result 
of whatever policy was violated, then you can't be held liable for that, and neither can the company. Now, I know you would never make a mistake like that, but no. it Who has knows? happened. You know, it's like, it, right. and I know we all can't be perfect, but we all right. can't be Mike Coffee too. So, <laughs> um, But in any event, when you realize that if you make a mistake and it's an honest mistake and you've done your best in the investigation, don't worry about it. Do your investigation and then let that lie because you can take comfort in the fact that you did your very best. And if an honest mistake is discovered later on, then that's all it is. And you don't have to worry about being legally liable for it. So we've done our investigation. We've talked to our witnesses and now we, and we've even come to our, you know, our, our conclusion of, of what the facts are. Talk to me about writing the report. What are your considerations about what we reduced to writing? Uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, and, uh, and what do we, you know, how do we, you know, do we call John uh, a sexual harasser right in the, in our paper? I mean, I, I think that gives a lot of people pause to say that this person did this, you know, this icky act. Um, and, and so, you know, talk, talk about writing the report. Well, writing the report should just reflect the significant factual allegations that you recorded or obtained, if it's physical evidence, from the investigation. For example, an investigation should never say that one employee treated another employee rudely. That's not a factual allegation. That is a conclusory allegation that means nothing to the investigator or later on down the road, perhaps the attorney defending the company. You need to find out what the actual factual allegation is. Well, what do you mean to say that this employee treated the other employee in a rude manner? Well, she called me a biatch, if you will. Um, okay, well, that's a factual allegation. But the investigators have to have that information in order to put into their report um, so that you can just reflect what the facts were. And so you recount the facts. The way I start off my reports is um, you guys came to me, wanted me to do this investigation. I've, I've done this investigation. Here are the facts that I've determined. Here are the credibility points that I've discerned from the fact are the uh, witnesses in the evidence. And then I stop. I don't, well, if it's one of, if, if it's a existing client, then I will go ahead and make a recommendation because whatever I tell them is protected under the attorney-client com uh, communication privilege and cannot be disclosed to third parties, even under a subpoena type of situation. If it's an HR uh, consultant who is not an attorney, even if it's a uh, HR consultant who's got a PI license, um, and PI, of course, means private investigator. I should have said that at the top. Um, but even if they have a private investigator license, remember that that report is going to be discoverable if this thing gets into litigation or arbitration. And so we don't want to have the type of situation, which I talked about earlier, where the 
HR consultant put in her report that yes, discrimination did occur and therefore um, should the company should have done this instead of what they had done because that'll be completely damning to the employer if it gets into litigation. Right. What about recommendations, uh, you know, including, you know, the HR consultant or the attorney in the report says going forward, we should re- reevaluate our policies related to this or, uh, or on the flip side, should, should we make recommendations that we should, this person should be terminated based on this? Uh, you know, what about those, those kind of corrective actions from whatever we learned from the investigation? Should, is the report the place to do that or should that be uh, a different mechanism? That's a great question. If the report is coming from a lawyer, obviously put it, the lawyer can put that into the report. If it's not coming from a lawyer, then that would be points of discussion, not emails, not text, uh, and certainly not in the report. But I advise uh, HR consultants who are not attorneys to do those type or have those type of conversations verbally. Uh, So there's no record of them. Um, and if you have to testify later about what the investigator told the company or the HR company, well, then you simply tell them the truth because that's what you're required to do. And the whole thing about this investigation is getting at the truth in the first place. And so we're going to do our best to do it there. But as an HR consultant, who's not a lawyer, I would advise them to be very judicious with their words. You don't have to say a lot in order to say a lot, if you will. Right. Well, and like with that local government uh, investigation that we did last fall, because of being a local government, and if it if it had resulted in you know uh, resulting in in uh, negative impact uh for that individual it's possible that the you know the whole report could be in the public domain anytime at any almost any oh, time oh that's true and so i we spent or i spent um you probably spent an, more time on the report than yeah, on yeah, the investigation almost i mean it, at, at least a, a quarter of the time i billed for was report writing time and it was and uh it was because Again, I was listening to all the recordings again. I, I wanted to get, I mean, if it ended up on the front page of the local newspaper and it, it, you know, and it may still, who knows, I wanted to be able to defend every single thing that was said in there. And so uh, I think, uh, but even if you're not a, dealing with a local government, there's still that, that risk that it ends up in a deposition uh, or, you know, or it's, it's uh, you know, subpoena deuces tecum, you know, and it's, it, and it's turned over and it could be out there. And for the whole world to see, or just the opposing counsel to see, and, and, or a jury. So that's uh, uh, I'm I'm really really cautious what I put in writing to our clients. So, and that's one of the reasons I push arbitration agreements so hard for our Texas employers because even if it does come up in the dispute uh, during the arbitration hearing, it's all confidential, mm. and so you don't have to worry as much. Plus, with an arbitrator, you don't have to worry about his or her emotions getting involved in some of the testimony, even though the testimony may be very emotional. uh, Most arbitrators are like me. They're um, old, beat up litigators 
who have had all the emotion sucked out of their <laughs> their brains and their hearts. <laughs> um, and so they'll really listen to the facts and not be swayed by emotions. So we finished up the investigation. The decisions of, you know, management leadership has made the decisions about what they're going to do. What follow-up needs communication needs to happen with the parties in the investigation? Always, always, always get back to the person or people who brought this situation to your attention. I can't tell you how many times, Mike, and you've probably experienced this as well, that an employee has decided to sue a company because they took no action in response to that employee's complaint. When in fact, they took a great deal of action. They investigated uh, promptly. They went ahead and remediated or corrected the situation. And as far as the investigation and the remedial response, they get an A plus, but they never ever communicated anything back to the attorney. I'm sorry, the employee who initially filed the complaint. That is a huge mistake. You've got to respond back to them with some type of information. You don't have to give them all the details and they're not entitled to all of the details, but you can tell them that you have addressed the situation, you've looked into it, you've interviewed witnesses, you've looked at physical and electronic evidence, and we've come to a decision that um, we can either share with you or we can't. It depends on the situation. You have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. But always get back to them with at least something and do it verbally. Um, you don't have to record this, even though you may be recorded at the time when you deliver this news, but you want to do it verbally so that it's not a physical or electronic piece of evidence that shows up as exhibit A in that employee's lawsuit, you know, two years down the road. Well, that's all great stuff. But we have I'm taking a lot more of your time than oh. I told you I was going to, but I uh, I know it's dinner time there in Allen, Texas, so I'm going to let you head back. But thank you, John, for joining me. That was uh, that was a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Mike. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search for our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And I'll include John's contact information in the show notes. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. Imperative's marketing coordinator, Mary Ann Hernandez, keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up. <laughs>